Well, let's head into this week's message. It, we're in week four of Lion and the Lamb. Uh, last week, we kind of laid out this truth for those who follow Christ, that we are to lay down our inward desires of seeking revenge and harm and hatred to those who hurt us, persecute us, harm us, our enemies. Jesus said in this profound teaching that you have heard it said before, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Christ is saying this, that if you're going to follow me, if my death and resurrection allows me to live through you in faith, this will be your flavor. This will be your new worldview. A life where power is actually found in weakness, self-denial, and sacrifice. That this world, as my followers, might even consider you weak. But what we learned profoundly last week through the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Corinthians, that God says that he uses the weak to shame the strong, that he uses the foolish to shame the wise. Christ's kingdom that he has brought here on earth is not about our nobility or our ability, but rather it is shown through human weakness and those who can see how broken and utterly unwise that they are. And instead of demanding our own independence so that we may do what we please and how we want to, followers of Christ are to seek dependence on a wisdom and a truth and a grace that is outside of themselves, all of which are found in Christ and the Holy Spirit that moves within us. And so Christ is our fleshly incarnation of a holy cosmic God himself. It was out of love that God sent his son into the world to deal with the problem of sin, sin that separated his creation from himself. And so God sends his son to absorb the punishment of disobedience and sin that comes from humanity walking in their own truths, walking in their own wisdom, walking in their own heart inclinations. His death and resurrections perfectly meets the demand of justice that God has on sin and disobedience. And in it, he gives us grace, right standing in front of God, unmerited favor through faith in Christ. And he offers us a new life and a new relationship, a new life where flourishing and joy is found from God himself working in our lives to compel and convict new desires through the Holy Spirit as we lean into his wisdom and surrender our own. And what we know as a believer, even in our failures, in our sin, in our inability to lay down all that we have to Christ. What Christ affords to us is a secure forgiveness through his blood that offers to us a safety net of some sorts, that when we fall, when we sin, that we can get back up. Not that we would stay in the net, but by grace that we would get out and pursue and boldly come to God seeking new desires, new wisdom, new hope, new strength to walk like he walked for his glory and for our joy. And so over the past week, I have deliberately used the word flourishing 
extensively in my conversation with you because God has a design and a desire for his creation to flourish. Uh, There's a theologian named Jonathan Pennington. He writes this about Christ-centered flourishing. He says, Christianity provides not merely a set of values or a vision that we should pursue and which thereby promises flourishing, provides the heart cure and renewal in our souls that enables us to actually pursue and experience flourishing. This is good news indeed. But we, what we must always do when we enter a conversation in flourishing is to really define what flourishing is. What, what is biblical flourishing comparative to what worldly flourishing is? And so we know that worldly flourishing is self-focused and has to do with achievement, has to do with wants being met, pleasure being had, sufferings being eradicated. It brings glory to myself. It brings glory to man. And God does not share in any of those ideas. Biblical flourishing is different from all sorts of worldly flourishing because it is graciously made available to all people, men, women, child, adult, educated, illiterate, free, enslaved, poor, and rich. There is no special group in God's kingdom. All have at their fingertips, through faith, the ideas of flourishing to them, available to them. It is as available to the pauper as it is to the prince through Christ. And so what we read in Scripture is that biblical flourishing is illuminated by an other-centric lifestyle that is the effect of a personal renewal in one's life where one's identity and joy and supplication is defined and satisfied fully in God and God alone. Not always perfectly fulfilled and satisfied here on earth, but with hope that in the eternal, all will come to be. It is God over everything, trusting God over self. What I have found is that there's just this interesting translation issue that occurs in what Jesus deems as the blessed life. They're called the Beatitudes. And you can find them in his Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus defines as a blessed life, of what it means to be blessed. And so I want to look at those together, and I want to talk about this translation thing. It says this. This is Jesus talking about what it means to be blessed in life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who persecute for, or persecute it for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And what is interesting here in translation is not this erroneous, gross error in translation, but rather it comes with or from the fact that in our English language, sometimes we don't have words that fully show us what the Greek is trying to say. 
Meaning this is that there are words that are spoken in Greek that mean one thing that we don't have a word in our English language to compel that word. And so that's sometimes when you read scripture, we talk about all these different translations and man, why are we translating so many different things? And why is it saying this? Well, well, sometimes if you see in multiple translations in the Bible, things are being compelled differently, there's probably a Greek word underneath of that that is really kind of difficult to put into English language. And that is proven to be true within the Beatitudes here. Uh, this word blessed is, is a word called makeros in Greek. And in Greek, it means blessed or happy or envied by others. And there have been other translators, like in, in John's uh, literal translation from 1862, he writes, he, he translates the Beatitudes this way. It says, happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those are the meek. But what has been increasingly understood by New Testament scholars today and what in their translations, the word that they're using more often is this idea of flourishing. That they would compel that when Jesus talks about the blessed life, you could put this word, flourishing are the poor in spirit. Flourishing are those who mourn. Flourishing are the meek. Because you see in Jesus' idea of a blessed life, burden is blessing. Burden is blessing. And so in Jesus' kingdom, flourishing revolves around meekness, being poor in spirit, hungering for righteousness, mourning uh, the absence of our own wisdom and ability. It is a reliance on God solely, a position where God gives us more than we ever could possibly give ourselves. And so listen, what I am not saying in flourishing is that it's a self-loathing. I'm not saying it's a self-hatred, but rather it is as if a child, it's like a child who, who surrenders to a better authority on life than they are to grow and mature in their life. It is that which we do to Christ for flourishing. We submit to a better authority than our wisdom and our truth. And so it's important to me that we define flourishing. Uh, it's important to me that we do, because if you don't understand what it means to flourish in God's kingdom, you will miss impactful things that come from Jesus' words. If your belief and flourishing has come from some Christian televangelist that has told you that flourishing is about prosperity and wealth and material, if, if your flourishing comes from a worldly idea that, that it is about pleasing yourself, when you hear the words, love your neighbor, you will think that is absolutely ridiculous. If you hear that weakness is power, you will say that's utter fullness, or foolishness. But for those who trust and love God, it becomes the marks of freedom and flourishing. And so let me show you this, just say this. This is important work as we prepare for a conversation about forgiveness today. Important work as we prepare for a conversation about generosity next week. If loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute you is what Jesus defines in his wisdom as God honoring and thriving, then we have some underlying work to do in the areas of generosity and forgiveness as we pray through the Spirit that God would renew our desires and renew our hearts. And so let's talk about forgiveness today.
I can't get that, that Don Henley song. It says, forgiveness. It's just, it's in my head right now. I can't get it out of my head. That's my ADD coming out right there. Uh, Listen, I am sensitive enough to know that amongst us are deeply profound, significant hurts and pains that have come from other people that are beyond what I've experienced in life. Some of you in this room, through the hands of human, have suffered cruelty and evil things that are well beyond my scope. And, and so listen, I, I'm not going to be up here on stage telling you, hey, look, you need to get over it. As some sort of expert on giving forgiveness in really difficult, tragic situations. But rather today, I appeal to you as a sinner who himself has found forgiveness in which I did not deserve through Christ. I'm not here to determine rightness in your situation or bring justification, only this, that in the light of the immensity of forgiveness that was granted to me when I did not deserve it, I have come to believe that the grace that has been given to me cannot stay with me. It has to be given as much as it is received, though it may cost pride, esteem, accolade, title, rightness. What we receive in freedom and flourishing in Christ is far better than what we lay down and give up. And so as we approach forgiveness, we should do what we always should do and look into the scriptures and see what God's wisdom on this subject is. And the great news for us is that God has wrote extensively on forgiveness. And we're gonna spend most of our time together today in Matthew's gospel in chapter 18. This is a a parable called the parable of the unforgiving servant. And to us, it's great wisdom in the area of forgiveness. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. You can use your phone. We'll put it on the screen. But let's put our eyes on scripture together. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how will my brother, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who has wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that they had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to, to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servants fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then this master, and then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father would do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And so this scripture begins with Peter compelling this noble idea in generosity and forgiveness. Peter, make no mistakes, is, is trying to look good here. He says, should I forgive them seven times, Lord? Because here's the thing in Jewish culture. You were mandated that you had to forgive somebody three times. On the fourth, not so much. And so Peter is thinking that he's looking pretty generous here. I'm looking pretty good. But Jesus does what he often does with human wisdom. He makes it foolish. Jesus, in his wisdom, compels to Peter and he compels to us that forgiveness is not a matter of counting. It's not a matter of how many times. Rather, it's just that you would forgive. Don't make this about counting. Just forgive as it comes to you. And then Jesus compels this treasure of a parable of the unforgiving servant and in it we get to identify three different characters that will be for our wisdom three characters that teach us a lot about forgiveness and those three characters are the king and in this parable the king is our god that is god we see the servant the servant is me it's us put your name in there That's who the servant represents. And then we have the fellow servant, and that is others. Those are other people in our lives. And what is beautiful in this is that we get to see what roles each person plays in forgiveness, which is great wisdom for us. But listen, it's not just wisdom that's found in the story. If we would understand these roles and submit to them, you would find flourishing and forgiveness in your own life. These are great wisdom. This is great wisdom for us to understand in every area of forgiveness. And so let's begin to break these characters down to see what we can learn from this parable. First, when we look at the king, what do we notice about the king, our God? He's in a position of abundance. He's in a huge position. What a sizable debt that this king reprieves from his servant. If you were to think of 10,000 talents in today's culture, what you're dealing with is one to two billion dollars. I said billion. What kind of king forgives a billion dollar debt? Who on this earth would forgive a billion dollar debt? And so what we can deduce, deduce from this king is that there's an abundance that he has that makes one to two billion dollars look like mere pennies. His abundance is greater than anything that we could ever imagine. And so what that means for us is that whatever sin that you have deemed to be your billion dollar sin, that you think that there is no way that God could ever forgive that, is easily forgivable in the kingdom of God. From his abundance, your sin is small in his scope. 
The second thing that we learn is that he's active in restoration. Who is the one that begins the act of settling his accounts? It is the king. He goes out to find those to settle with them. That is so much the character of our God that he actively is working in the world to bring his creation back. Best known in Christ that he would come to the world to deal with sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Beautiful thing. You, friend, will not find your way to God. The reality is, is God is already there. And you just need to recognize it. The, the third thing that we learn is that the king is powerful in rule. Powerful in rule. Powerful enough to release that sort of debt. Powerful enough to send man, woman, child to be sold in his presence. Powerful enough to snap his finger and have the capability of delivering to himself those in power and put holy justice on them. No one tells the king what to do. No one tells what the king what to do. No one speaks like he speaks. The king speaks, and it's so. In the king's words, there is life and death. But what we see in this king and what we know in our God is that his desire is redemption and reconciliation. That is his first desire. The fourth thing that we see in this king is that he's graceful in repentance. Without hesitation, in a moment, when he hears the cries of his suffering servant, he shows mercy. He doesn't need a counselor. He doesn't need legislation. Swiftly gives his mercy and grace. And how great is it for us to know that our God is not withholding mercy, but freely gives to those who humble themselves and confess their need to repent, who see their inability and cry out to God in his ability. The next thing that we see is that he's extreme in forgiveness. If we were gonna talk about a king that said, I'm gonna reprieve part of this loan, we would say, that's a good king. If we were talking about a king that says, I'm gonna make the payments longer here, you can pay me over the course of a long time, we'd say, that's a great king. We would be in awe of a king that said, you can repay this as you see fit, but what do we do with a king that saw all the debt and forgave all of it? Every ounce of it, no strings attached. The king doesn't make any sort of condition that the servant must do him a favor somewhere in the future. No, he releases him in that moment from his obligation, from the weight of consequence. No condition to those who submit to his lordship and his mercy. And the last thing we see is he is just. A benevolent and forgiving king. But for as benevolent and forgiving as he is, he's still perfectly just. Notice that in the servant's unforgiveness towards this other servant, does, does the king justly punish his lack of grace and compassion. In light of the forgiveness that was granted to this servant, 
in his cruelty to this fellow servant, the king proves perfectly just. And so friends, I want you to put your eyes on this and understand this is who our God is in forgiveness. This is his role, his ability. Now let's look at the servant. It's me, you, put your name in here. What do we know about the servant? Well, he is in massive debt. Massive debt. Now, now we talked about the debt according to the abundance of the king. That's a great amount of money. One to two billion dollars is an unfathomable amount of money to just forgive. But consider this, that for the average worker in this day, one talent equates to 15 years work. One talent. And how many talents does this servant owe? 10,000 talents. That is the, that is the, like, the sum of 150,000 years work. 150,000 years later, the truth is, is that this debt is not payable for the servant. And that is precisely the point. This servant is us. Get this, this is us. And here's what it shows us, that, that we are not capable in the least by our own human effort of repaying the debt that we have to our God. Only through the priceless sacrifice of his son can God redeem us. You are without ability to pay without Jesus. What else do we notice in the servant? Well, he's under authority. What can the servant do that is not allowed by the king? What can the servant do that is not gifted or commanded by the king? Nothing. Even in his own effort, by his own power to extort a fellow servant who has a small debt that is owed to him, the king steps in. His authority is an illusion. Listen, our authority is an illusion. Nothing is unseen or unnoticed by God. Nothing given or granted that isn't coming from God. The third thing that we see is that the servant is actually a partner and restoration. What is the one similarity or shared action that both the king and the servant partake in? Settling accounts. As the king goes to settle accounts with his people, therefore his people do the same. And this is God's design for us, that we are his partners in restoration on this earth. That because we have been given forgiveness and grace, that we have found peace with God through Christ, we are now agents of God's reconciliation that we are to declare to the world because of our forgiveness that Christ has made peace between God and man. The servant is a partner in reconciliation. He doesn't do it well, but it is his ability. And then we see this, that the, he's without power. Again, the only power granted to the servant was what was allowed by the king. And then we notice that he's extreme in unforgiveness. If you would consider 
the massive debt that was just done away with and forgiven 150,000 years, what would you do with the size of a loan that is so minute that this other servant owed him? The word said that he owes him 100 denarii. Let me give you a scope of what that is. So we're talking about 150,000 years. The average worker in this day made one denarii a day. That was their living wage. This is essentially three or four months wages. We're talking a few dollars compared to millions. How minute this is compared to his debt. Petty on a scale never seen before. But listen to what God is saying in this wisdom. All the things that we harbor against one another as huge in scale as we might believe them to be are insignificant to the kind of debt that you were forgiven from. Insignificant. That doesn't mean they're not painful. That doesn't mean they're not real. It just means that our God is a God of abundance and a God of freedom. And the last thing that we notice in the servant is that he's jailed. Not just. He's jailed by his disobedience. And I'm telling you, this is physical, but it's also abstract. What was the result of this unforgiveness by the servant? Jail. He was put in prison. Not only is this communicating God's justice, but it's also communicating abstractly a life where we are in a jail of unforgiveness, a jail of our own doing. It holds us like a prison where our walls and our bars are that of hatred and bitterness and, and thoughts of revenge. It is us who are far worse off in unforgiveness than any others. And so this is what the Bible says is us. This is our role in forgiveness. You must recognize where you sit in forgiveness. Nothing is given to you but what is given to you by the king. And then the third character that we meet is this fellow servant. And we'll call them other people. And maybe we would ask, well, what do other people own in forgiveness? What are their roles? Well, I would just say this. Uh, it's not mine to own. <laughs> their role is not mine to own. Here's what I get to do. I get to seek to settle and I don't control. Seek to settle, and I don't control. What does this servant do? He sends this other person who owes him, rings him around the neck, sends him to jail over a debt that is without comparison to his own. But what ends up happening to that servant? He's justly put in jail. And the wisdom here is that those people in our life who we have felt like owe us, have wronged us, never should we ever in our minds consider them controllable by my efforts. All that actually does is lead to a life where I'm controlled by them. The servant's unforgiveness resulted in his own imprisonment. He desired to control and manipulate. How often do we want to control and manipulate the hurts in our lives? This is true and good wisdom from our word. 
true and good wisdom for you and I today. Other people's responses are not ours to own, not ours to manipulate it. Rather, as we find and love the debt that was paid for us, we partner in reconciliation, allowing others to respond how they want to respond in light of our own forgiveness. We let them walk in their own wisdom that is either flourishing or to their own detriment. But we, we live at a higher level. We live at a higher level. So these are the roles that we see in forgiveness in this beautiful parable. And isn't it a great truth? God's word is so rich to bring life to our weary souls. And so as a matter of application in our lives this week, in the area of forgiveness, we must remind ourselves, renew our thoughts every day that we should always look at the world and each other through my lens of forgiveness from God. We should always remember the grace that was given to us, the debt that was paid by God for us, and realize this, it will be always bigger than anything somebody does to you. You know, there's a story about uh, a businessman and a servant that are traveling to Burma, and they are fording through all sorts of different bodies of water, and over time, he began to see his body be swarmed by these blood-sucking like, like leeches. And his first impulse is to look at them on his body and to rip them out. But a servant speaks up and says, you can't do that. You'll only bring more harm on your life. You see, if you use physical violence to remove those leeches, you will leave parts of those leeches behind in their wound, and they'll become poison to you. You have to let them spontaneously fall out, off for them to be harmless. And so what the native did was he went and he prepared a bath mixed with herbs, and he directed them to lie down in this bath. And as soon as he bathed in this balsam bath, the leeches began to fall off. And here's the moral of this story. Every and each unforgiven injury Living in your heart is like a leech that is sucking your blood out. And mere human determination will not cast those evil things away. You must bathe your whole being in God's pardoning mercy. And it is then that those venomous creatures will instantly let go of their hold. And you will stand in freedom. You must bathe your whole being in God's pardoning love. That is the parable. You must see how much you have been forgiven so that you can forgive just as you have been forgiven. And so friends, my prayer for you this week is that you would not focus on the hurts and the leeches in your life, but rather you would focus on God's forgiveness and God's mercy, that you would bathe all of yourself in his love and his identity you have that in Christ by faith. And quite frankly, you don't need anything else. That person hurting the way that you hurt will never give to you the type of flourishing that you already have in Christ. 
And so listen, be a partner in reconciliation. Identify the pain. Identify the hurt. And settle the account. Go and say, let them know. But you cannot control their response. All you can do is to remember to bathe yourself wholly in God's pardoning mercy and love. His forgiveness. It exists in the kingdom of God where forgiveness finds those who forgive. Not the wisdom we always want in our lives, but this is flourishing wisdom that we need for God's glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we are heavy in heart because there are some unbearable hurts that rest in this room. Hurts that have been caused by others in our lives. Hurts that we want to hang on to. Hurts that we want to seek revenge over. Hurts that we want to harm. God, will you give us mercy? Will you let us see our forgiveness? Will you let us see the size of debt that we have been reprieved from by your name? that we might let go of what has bound us in a prison cell of our own hatred and bitterness. Will you lead us to the flourishing by your wisdom, by your words, by your heart, that we would seek from you what we need, not justice from others. And so, Lord, we just ask this We ask this in your name, Jesus, to change our hearts and our desires, to give us the freedom to lay this down. We love you, Jesus.